Welcome to From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. In part two of my conversation with Coach Ryan Banta, we cover a variety of topics. We start by discussing his rationale for tempo training and its many benefits from both an energy system standpoint as well as the building of structural resilience. We discuss how recovery is important and how he facilitates recovery methods by utilizing recovery stations. Coach Banta shares how he approaches the weight room and why it's beneficial to track athletes. Naturally, I couldn't pass up letting Coach Banta provide his views and opinions on the biggest misconceptions to be found in track and field and where he feels like the sport has grown the most in modern times. He also discusses how he feels like the sport can reach higher levels and gain more exposure. This is a great conversation packed with a lot of fun ideas. So without further ado, let's get to it. Something that I'd I'd like to jump to now with you is tempo training. And let's talk about the benefits of tempo training to start with. And then let's kind of talk about how you would stack that into a week's time as well. Usually a Sunday is a complete day off neurologically. I mean, you're probably going to church, temple, synagogue, whatever. But outside of that, it's a pretty easy day, right? A lazy Sunday, right? There's a reason why it's called that, right? A beautiful day, go drive around in a nice car, go visit family, friends, chill. So Monday is always going to be the most intense day, and it should be. I mean, Clyde Hart has heavily influenced some of my thoughts and ideas, but I don't mimic his training like he does tempo on a Monday. Now, the collegiate philosophy with doing tempo on a Monday is like, well, they just went really hard on a Saturday, and we want to give him two days recovery but still get something done. I get that, but I would much rather have the energy of the week be at the beginning of the week to create the most space. They're always thinking the after effects of competition, and I'm always thinking the pre-effects of competition. Like that workout and that session and all that stuff is done. When they warm up at practice, if they're good to go, let's train. Let's not waste another day. And when I mean that truly with doing tempo on a Monday, that's a wasted day because you're, you're, you're using the gasoline of the central nervous system and you're kind of burning a lot of it off. I don't like that. But day two after the central nervous system has kind of been, you know, fried and needs a little bit of recovery. Well, what are you going to do to improve aspects of your athlete in training now that you have a cns that's down do you just give them the whole day off and send them home well no you know if you do you know an active recovery day you know i'd rather do that on a wednesday because if you do it on a tuesday that means now you got to do it on a thursday because wednesday is going to be a tough day then what do you do on friday it's a pre-meet okay and then you got competition on saturday i mean lose strategically an extra day of training Now, to some people, they don't care because they don't care about that. I care about it for one of the reasons. Well, while my athletes are going over there, maybe I can go now coach the hurdlers or maybe my jumpers can go jump and I've got something safe and effective for these athletes to do. It's not as good as the Monday work, but it's good enough. And then I can go over here and I can take care of the athletes. So just from a general organizational standpoint, it's useful, but it has many other uses. The biggest thing is, is that most of our athletes compete two days in a row early on in the season. They might not be able to tolerate two intense days in a row, but they need to kind of see it before they see it for real. How do you blend the overcoming of the physical and mental distress that they're going to be under the first time they have to go two days in a row? Well, Temple provides a nice middle stopgap measure 
while their fitness and tactical and psychological strengthening and resilience gets improved. And as that gets improved on the Monday, and then they can come back and tolerate the second day in a row, then you can start to dial up the intensity. So it simulates a two-day competition that they're probably going to face in most states and state championships. So that's another reason to do it besides just logistical. The third reason is, is that we want to create adaptations biologically that we want to take advantage of later. Well, I'd rather have the central nervous system fried on a Monday and then be able to do some sort of tolerance work on a Tuesday where the central nervous system is not necessary. Yeah. And, and, so then, and with tempos too, like the resilience of the structure as well, like we're going to get into recovery here in just a second too. Like it's, it's a great opportunity for recovery, but also resilience within the tissues because it takes a lot of pounding uh, on the track as well. Exactly. And one of the things we want to do in, in these adaptations is we don't all, only want to tolerate two days in a row. We also want to create an athlete that can tolerate the buildup of the, you know, the hydrogen ions or lactic acid, whatever you want to call it, so that the body gets better at buffering that. And I don't want to do that at the sacrifice of the central nervous system. I want the central nervous system workouts to be there for those days. I want those intense days to be that with big recoveries relative to the distance you're asking in the run, whether it's a flying 10 or a 350 all out, right? The CNS needs to be respected for both of those Monday workouts, obviously on separate days, separate Mondays, but you want that. So then on the Tuesday, we're building that buffering capacity that allows the athlete to push through the fatigue, moving it farther and farther down the track so that it's actually less and less of the experience. Now, men and women probably need a little different variation of that because men are naturally going to spend less time in that buffering system in the short sprints, but might spend more time in it in the 800 than a female that would be more aerobically based as an 800 runner naturally because they spend less time in that buffering system for an 800 because they just can't stretch it to that point. But a guy can take that risk because the time is shorter. So see, this is where it gets really interesting. And that's what's so fun about coaching. So that's another aspect of it. But what you said is the resilience, not only of buffering, but the resilience of the tissues. So now I can run at a slightly slower speed and get my ligaments and my tendons more robust and built up to handle future CNS demanding work that then I can add a little bit more volume of that work or lengthen the individual efforts of that work and feel safe in the pursuit of that, which means I can be more competitive over a longer period of time and be safer at doing that. So that's another aspect of it. The other thing I like about tempo because it's lower intensity is we can work on dealing with the unilateral aspects of our sport and try to make them more bilateral. So instead of my kids constantly running one way around the track, I can now run the opposite way around the track. And once again, respect balance, not in the stimulus of the training days, but within the individual session of what the body is facing. Like I would love that if there was a day where hitters batted from the opposite side of the plate all the time, like in my philosophy, I would be like, there'd be, it would be nice to have one day a week of that just to get them out of the mindset, just to strengthen the body, just to create some balance. And of course, that would be very odd for professionals 
But if you're doing it at a developmental stage, they're going to be more robust, stronger, and as you mentioned, more resilient. Then as the season moves along, we're not so much worried about the biological adaptations. Now what we're trying to do is attack the strategic adaptations. So then what I'm trying to do is come run and work on back-end pace of the 400. So my second 200 of a 400, I want my athletes to be able to replicate over and over and over again at that speed. As the season moves along and that intensity goes up, I start to slide away the number of reps and tempo when we get to our peak phase. And what ends up happening is that second day no longer is tempo. It transforms into a speed reserve or a speed endurance or speed maintenance day back to back, which lo and behold, at the end of the season now has stair-stepped the athlete into adaptation that now looks like voila, two hard days of training back-to-back, not a tempo, two very CNS-demanding days back-to-back that the athlete can tolerate, which looks a heck of a lot like a two-day state championship. And so that's what I like about doing tempo in the metamorphosis of that tempo over the course of the weeks and months of the season. Yeah, it's a lot of cooking again, like you're talking about, like it's it, you're adjusting it as the season moves along to make it to, to again, I can't help but to see the word constraint to where it, to where it throws right. them into into this sense to where they're going to be working towards something that's simulated very closely to what they're going to be experiencing in competition. So a lot of that makes a ton of sense to me is the way that you stack that. So let's talk a little bit about recovery. Uh, how sure. you, I've heard you use recovery stations. Uh, so you can, can you talk a little bit about kind of like what your light bulb moment was with that and when you begin to implement that and just the different ways in which you try to facilitate recovery. I heard you reference the Friday as like a proprioceptive day. I don't know if recovery's thrown into that as well, but if you could uh, talk a little bit about that too, because that stood out to me earlier in the conversation as well. Yeah, so when the... Recovery station in its true form came from one of my buddies, Coach Woolbrink, who was at Northern Illinois, and they just won um, their indoor and outdoor conference championships. And when he was at Hazelwood West, they won their first state trophy in a really long time. And then before that, he was at McClure winning state trophies and individual relay titles all over the place. And Coach Woolbrink is one of those guys who says all the time, like, well, you know, I'm not that smart. I'm not smart like you, you know, and I just, you know, it's, it's a total liar. Okay. First of all, he's very, very smart, but what he does is he's able to create simple solutions for problems. And so one of the things he found out is like, he, he got really kind of sick and tired of having athletes constantly go over to the trainer or leave practice to, to get something looked at or worked on that might just require foam rolling, getting the lacrosse ball out massage, stretching, but he can't stretch all the athletes because in the recovery between an interval run is when you do most of your coaching, when you're talking to athletes and you're getting them sorted out. And sometimes it's just a little cramp or, or something that needs to be loosened. Then how I evolved that was there's this other guy known as Kelly Starrett, who wrote the Becoming a Supple Leopard. And that book is silly title, but phenomenal in terms of creating. And what I love about what Kelly said is he's like, look, I don't want my athletes to have to have some sort of paywall to treat themselves, to go have somebody do what they could do at home. And so in this book, Becoming a Supple Leopard, 
you have all these different exercises that you can do at home to do kind of like tension release, self-massage, unique stretching, floss bands, all this kind of stuff. And most of those things kids can do at practice, right at the side of the track or at home. So then what I do is I will have the kids come to me and they will take out the pictures and they'll take pictures of all of those exercises in the book to do at practice. And they don't have to say, Banta, what was that again? And they just go and they click to their cell phone and they go and they see the in the picture. Oh, here it is. That's how you do that. And then they do it right there at the station. So they don't leave me and go to the trainer somewhere far away. That way I can work with more athletes at once. I can talk to the athletes who are healthy and the athletes who are suffering or having some sort of issue. The other evolution of that was, is working with Altus as uh, the their as apprentice coaches program and seeing them actually do it. They treat the track and field athletes like their Formula One race cars. Well, that's, I mean, that's such an excellent idea. It's like, yeah, we need to be doing roadside track side maintenance. And so that's where like those three pieces kind of came together to say, all right, what can the kids do on their own? Providing them some of the toolkits right next to us so that they don't have to go to the trainer to get it. Now, obviously if there's something serious, we want them to go do it. But if it's something that's just kind of in there, just being a nuisance, we might be able to work it out on the side and then treating those athletes with respect to say, Hey, you're kind of like a race car. So we want to keep you here. We want to keep you tuned up. And if you need some of this stuff, you can go ahead and attack it right here at our finish area for our interval so that you don't have to go too far away like a Formula One race car. You pull into the pit stop, you get your maintenance done, you get your tires blown blown back up, you, you get a little oil put in the engine, and we're good to go. So that's kind of where I came up with that particular piece of our program. It is not mine. It is an evolution of basically three masters of that particular stuff. Yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense because, again, there's probably two other approaches. It's either, like you said, they go to the trainer, maybe a trainer, maybe they go to the doctor, and that's probably going to be even worse because Lord knows it's just going to be like rested, ice, it's something that's probably not going to be beneficial to the injury to begin with because they just assume uh, patella femoral syndrome or something almost 90% of the time, right? Uh, yeah. And then, and then also – or they just sit there and they do nothing. And like you said, if it's a, if it's a F1 pit stop, then that's not what the race car does whenever it's attempting to get back out there and race. It doesn't just sit there because sitting there is actually worse for it. You have to have some type of stimulus unless it's an extreme injury to, to keep you moving, to keep, to facilitate you moving back towards competition. So all that makes a lot of sense because typically I feel like the, the best answer for most people would be, well, you just need to set today out. Well, you just need to take today off. And sometimes that is the answer, but it's not always the answer. And that can become an extended layout off uh, as they continue to nurse and and not work towards uh, prescriptive means. Yeah, for sure. And, and one of the things to jump off of that too, is that we think about like having an A, B, C, D, E, F workout, and we don't do any of that, you know, uh, deciding on the B, the alternative means until we see them warm up. Right. And once we see them warm up, then it's like, ooh, you know, the chassis is a little loose today. What's going on? Come here and talk to me. How can we figure this out? Well, you know, I was playing gator ball today and I felt something kind of cramp up and behind my knee. Well, where behind your knee? Are we talking about your hamstring? Are we talking about the, you know, the the point where the 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 tendons and ligaments connect together down there to do their job, right? What are we looking at? Okay, is it in both legs? Is it in a single leg? 
what's your pain level? Is it one or is it 10? And then of course that is athlete dependent because some kids will tell you, ah, I'm good. You know, and another kid will have like a, a hangnail on their toe and they're like, oh my God, it's a 10, you know? And then what you have to try to do is you have to try to keep them moving as much as they can tolerate without injury. The only way you can do that is having alternative means that you've created ahead of time that you found to be very useful that allows you to do that. And then have people who are really good at solving those puzzles who've put plans together to give you progressions. So full disclosure, in most of my years, I never have any hamstring pulls at all, which is one of the most common injuries for track and field and most power-based sports. Before this year, I had three in 12 years, three and 12. All of those kids were a little overweight. They had a strong Q angle. They had small feet and they were very powerful. So then you have the small platform that's built at an angle that is going to put extra tension on and then the load above that particular buttress, if you will, right? Or pillar is a lot of weight that's precarious in a funny position. So naturally it's like, you know, that's going to happen to those kids. Now, does it happen to every one of my kids? No, I only had three in 12 years. I had a lot of other kids that looked just the same and we were able to survive it. And I adjust my means to help those kids get through the training and to be successful, not just survive, but thrive. Right. This last year we had three in a week. Now, why is that? Well, what was I doing differently? We couldn't go inside when it rained because of the Rona. So we couldn't alternate our means like I normally do to create balance and training. We weren't allowed in the weight room. Well, scratch that. We were allowed in the weight room, but only like 10 people at a time. And if somebody tested positive, uh, we would have to shut the whole team down. So I did medicine ball work. We weren't allowed to do any partner stretching. And I know people think static stretching is a big negative, but I'm, I'm here to tell you it's not. And we weren't able to do any of our kind of like stability proprioceptive work off of stability balls with hamstring roll-unders and quad roll-unders and a hamstring to do the work it's supposed to do, which is really unique to any other type of muscle. It literally is doing most of its work under stretch as opposed to under a human being saying, okay, we're going to do this now, move the muscle. It's more of it's getting stretched out, snapping back and pulling through. And so all of those things were kind of built around that. Now, luckily enough, coach, because I had Gerald Mock, who I never met, he's been dead probably before I ever really got into coaching. He had a bunch of parameters that he had built a long time ago. And he was the guy that helped Charlie Francis develop his system. And he literally has a 14 day return program from a hamstring injury. So I loosely used a lot of his philosophy. The biggest one is let's get the kids jogging or dribble running as soon as they can. Let's getting them accelerating as soon as they can. And then when we bring them back to competition, we unfortunately are probably going to have to go long to short before we can get them back to that. So that means your training is going to be a little bit longer and a little bit slower. And in addition, so are your races. So you kind of take out the middle part, right? The high intensity length runs and you do the acceleration work and you do the drills and you still do the weight room. You do all the short 
explosive stuff, but you remove the, the middle range stuff and then you do the long stuff. And then once they show that they can run a 400 safely, then you might have them run a, a relay and then you might have them run the 200 and then eventually you might bring them back to the 100. And so those are the things that like, you know, you have to be very aware of and have plans in advance because if you don't, it's going to get real dangerous and you're going to have re-injuries. And when you get re-injuries, you might never get that kid back. Yeah. A couple of things that really stood out there. Don't hate me because I've had several guests on. We've talked about the negatives of static stretching. But I'm sure you have. Don't Neuro, we were talking about neurological things and uh, I've had a couple of guests on talk about that. But I loved whenever you talked about the hamstring there because that's something else I've referenced on other episodes is like how we, if I'm going to extremely specific on something, it's going to be the hamstring, especially in, in any sport that's going to involve running. And that's pretty much any sport that you're going to play just about. So the hamstring training, uh, we're going to go to the weight room next. And I feel like a lot of the times what we deem to be hamstring training is doing nothing to strengthen it where it needs to be strong at. It's actually working it on the opposite end of the spectrum. So I enjoyed hearing that. And I've even heard you reference that you've used pools and all these other different methods. Like you talked about, you have to have things ready to rock and roll. It's not something that you can just throw in there right whenever at the moment, whenever it happens, but you have to have an idea of how you're going to, again, bake those ingredients together to facilitate what we need in the moment. So a lot of those things make a lot of sense. So two more talking points, if you have time for it, I'd like to sure. talk about the role of the weight room and how you utilize the weight room. You referred to it earlier that you would typically do your weight room work after your track workout. And it's typically going to be stacked early in the week. Now, if we could talk a little bit about how that weight room work looks, are you doing like the big three? Are you doing those big lifts? Are you doing some specific things that perhaps might cater more towards track athletes? How do you approach the weight room? Well, first of all, if there's anything in the book, the Sprinter's Compendium, that I feel like really has helped a lot of track people who don't have a very thorough and thick background in the weight room, I feel like is the weight room program. Coach Weaver, who's won numerous state titles, so I, you know, I've only helped this guy a teeny tiny bit but he had a young lady who was very fast but was a cheerleader and never really did the things she needed to do in the weight room and i don't know what his background was in the weight room or not but he gave me kudos that he basically went step for step in the weight room program and so what does that mean is that well we need to have some progress in the weight room we need to have some adjustment and adaptation in the weight room as well and this young lady went from running I think it was like 25-7 or 25-40 to the following year as a senior in high school running 23-72. That is an, a monster, enormous difference. And she was like stacked and built and huge traps. And she didn't look like that beforehand. I am one of the track people that very much value the weight room and being thorough in the weight room. So what does that mean? I'm not just going to do hex bar deadlifts and then drop it and then lift it up again and then drop it. You know, I like that idea that JT is going to talk to you in a couple of weeks. And if you've ever had cool on here, I love it. It's a, it is a good unit of training that has purpose in a stimulation in a certain phase. So for me, that type of lift would be great in a maximal program for a maximal phase where you're doing very few reps, single doubles, triples at very high intensities and high percentages of effort. Love it. But I'm also going to be doing bench press, power clean, snatch, jerk, deadlift, 
at those times. I always put my Olympic variation, whatever it may be, it's the first thing out of the box in the weight room. What I do with my high school kids when they first come to my program is I have a combo lift called a Hellraiser. So we'll do two high pulls, you know, well, the first one's like a pull from the floor. The second one's a high pull. Third one, we kind of power clean it. Fourth one, we jerk. Then we put it behind the shoulders. We squat and we explode up and push it out from behind the head. And then we reset and we call that a Hellraiser. And then we'll do five reps of pull, pull, flip, push, down, squat, explode up, reset. And I like that because it teaches the athlete all of the other things that they're going to have to do from a high pull, from a clean to a jerk, to an overhead squat, to a, you know, all this kind of stuff to get them prepared for later. But that's going to be first one up front because it requires the most motor units and it requires the most pull from the body. And it's when the athlete is going to be their central nervous system is going to be in a deficit, but it's going to be in less of a deficit than it is at the end of the workout. And I always want my biggest bang for buck workouts up front because kids, football guys, they de-emphasize the track and they overemphasize the weight room. Track people overemphasize the track and de-emphasize the weight room. And so it's like the opposite, right? And I want to make sure that the natural reality, not science in a, in a lab or in a test, but the reality of what you're seeing with high school kids is they're running out the weight room all the time earlier than they should. Oh, I got to go. I got to go pick up my baby sister's cousin's aunt's dog, right? And so it's like, all right, so let's get those big key lifts up front so you can protect the things you definitely want to get out of the weight room and everything after that would be nice. So we got Olympic variation up front. Then we either deadlift or squat next, depending on what type of sprinter they are. So if they're a quad centric sprinter, we're going to squat next. If they are a hamstring centric sprinter, we're going to be doing some maximum, whatever force JTA or Kula stuff with the deadlift. Okay. And then we would flip it and then do the squat after. Then from there, we'll do the bench if we're doing everything on the same day. In the winter and the summer, I like to try to rotate days where we'll have an upper body emphasis day, a lower body emphasis day, because I can just get a lot done. And I know that I'm going to have the opposite day to facilitate it. And we have four days of lifting in the summer, four days of lifting in the winter. I used to go five, um, but I have a family and I have kids. And so again, from a reality sense, that's the most that I can get done. The weight room in the winter is the emphasis. So a lot of times, if you see my kids, they're going to be big and strong at the beginning of the year. They're going to be like, oh my God, these, what, these distance kids look like bodybuilders. But then the natural reality of sport is when the season starts for track, the weight room gets de-emphasized. And the reason why the weight room should be emphasized in the winter is that it's the one weather controlled space that you have every day. It's going to be 80 degrees and humid in that freaking weight room every day. But out on the track or on the soccer pitch or on the football field, you don't know what the weather is going to be like, or if you have turf or grass field or, or whatever it is. And so, you know, you just, you just know that that's what it's going to be. So it always needs to be planned in that way so that you have that there as a constant. 
you know, and then in the outdoor track and field season, we're lifting three times a week early and then two times a week uh, towards the end of the season, because we just don't have the space to get it done. But in my opinion, it is the second most important thing from a load perspective that I want to do with my kids besides the work on the track. Yeah. Everything you said there makes a lot of sense. Like you saying that football focuses too much on strength track focuses solely on speed and, and naturally, you know, in football, you have to be a resilient, you have to have resilient structures. You're going to be hitting each other every single play. But as a strength coach, my biggest paradigm has been to shift towards speed because I've, I've understood a lot about the weight room. And now I really emphasize a lot of speed uh, and on field things prior to the weight room. But at the same time, where, where does growth tend to happen the quickest? Like I've even alluded, alluded to this with Coach Holler that growth happens very quickly in strength. That's why most people are driven to that. Now, what do most kids need whenever they're developing at an early age? Strength and strength can facilitate a lot of early speed gains that, if appropriately stacked later, can continue to grow uh, from there on. So I see total importance of strength development, especially in young underage kids who who need to facilitate strength within certain structures because they don't even have it to pass on uh, the, the power uh, throughout their structure. So a lot of that makes sense. I like hearing the, the varying things between squat and deadlift because uh, Joel Smith has a lot of great stuff on that, you know, varying between the different types of runners because there's so many different mechanical issues between different runners. But that's awesome to hear coming from a track coach that the weight room is a big part. And then it's at an appropriate time of the year that you emphasize it and then you continue to maintain it again keeping that balance uh and that again would allude to probably staying away from injury because if you just jump to too far to one end of the spectrum then that comes back to bite you in the end and again yeah you're totally right it's one of the things that i think keeps our athletes healthy i mean what other way can you load up the skeletal system improve again the connective tissue and ligaments the weight room is an is a thing that may seem like Hey, I've got really good numbers in the weight room. Like I've got a weird, you probably listened to that podcast that was all jacked up that I had this morning, but you know, oh, I've got a a 470 pound squat and I've got a 270 bench, but I can only run 12, seven in the hundred. Well, ding, ding, ding. I, there, you know what the problem is there, you know, like it's, it's very easy that there's an underemphasis of the elastic strength and speed. So let's focus on that. But if a kid looks like they're a wet rat, you know, and they can't push out of the blocks at all. Well, we've got a power development problem. But what people forget is all of these things should be happening all year long so that you're still getting the benefits of them, of either them being the main course or the appetizer or the, you know, opening band or the feature artist. They're still there. They're still part of the dinner. They're still part of the performance in some aspect. And so like, again, like you're talking about it, and I love it, building up a resilient, globally improved athlete comes from the weight room, just like tempo does that from a running aspect, just like hypertrophic lifting allows you later to do maximal lifts or some sort of proprioceptive type of lifting, which gets into these funny, crazy lifts and things like that, that people like to put on Instagram, which could be dangerous, but if used properly could be really useful, you know, and I get so frustrated when I hear, and here's the thing, like coach Curtis, you're talking about being a power lifter. My father was the police Olympic powerlifting champ in the eighties. Okay. He had a 500 pound bench. He had a 700 
pound deadlift. And this dude had no roids. He just had honoriness, old man strength. Okay. And, and then it was so funny because people be like, oh man, if you did a couple cycles of roids, you'd be really big. He's like, I'm 287 pounds. I have a, you know, I got a neck that I can't fit in any shirt that fits me. I have to wear like these blouses, you know, to put clothes. On. I look silly. You know, he's just this enormous gorilla of a man. But what people don't understand is like, again, that weight room becomes supportive to all of the things that you want to do throughout the season. And those athletes need to see it. So like you said, sometimes they can't even take advantage of their genetic gifts because they have such limited strength that they can't put their body into the positions that they need to be in to be ready. You know, and that's where people who are like, ah, the weight room doesn't do this. It's like, look, man, if you're running track and field, none of these guys are going to become bodybuilders from the weight room because you're already kind of beaten down some of the testosterone for that. But you still need to maintain it for the benefits that it provides maybe later or globally in a wave that come down the line and prepares them to be able to technically do the movements to build when it becomes an emphasis again, to get into the positions that they need to eventually be able to put themselves in to manage bigger weight when it becomes a feature later on in the season. Yeah, absolutely. You've been you've been putting together a wonderful puzzle as we've gone through this entire thing, the way that you construct your track workout, the way that the weight room goes to that, the way that the recovery keeps you up and running like the race car that we referred to earlier. Now, I couldn't avoid serving you up a nice uh, slow pitch softball here. So we're going to end out. It's kind of a three part question. Uh, so I'll ask it in bit by bit here. So the first part of this question I want to ask is what uh, one area in modern track and field do you feel may be a major misconception? It could be for those within track and field. It could be for those outside the community. You may have more than one in mind. So what one area do you feel like in modern track and field, there's a major misconception? Well, I feel like, you know, the one thing that people say all the time is, well, I can't do track and field. I'm not fast. Okay. Well, there are 19 events in Missouri track. Not all of them do you have to be extraordinarily fast. You might just have a live arm and can throw the javelin. Most of our elite javelin throwers in Missouri are not really good at, at a lot of other things. What are, if you're a crazy person, do you have the ability to be kinesthetically aware, even though you're not necessarily super fast, but you're pretty ballsy and you, you feel comfortable going upside down? Well, maybe you can be a pole vaulter. You know, what if you're a great discus thrower? What if you're a great long distance runner and you just have never had your body stimulated to do it the other thing that i think a lot of times too is that it's racially dependent you know that you have to be a certain color or a certain shape that's bull crap there are fast people in every shape size and color okay and skin color is one of the few things that really matter in genetics when you really look at it you know you look at some of these guys that play soccer or elite cricket players or some of these guys who are playing high lie or badminton and you're seeing some extraordinarily super twitchy people now are there more commonalities amongst certain groups of people Absolutely. There is no doubt that there are more commonalities in certain groups of people, but when people mess up about those commonalities, they don't even really, you know, 
they're like Jimmy the Greek. They just make these broad brushstrokes opinions about people. And that's really unfortunate because I love when people break norms. You know, I love the fact that probably the best quarterback in the history of quarterbacking is going to be an African-American man. And one of the best running backs in the NFL is a white guy where people who are racist think that it's the opposite. You know, in my opinion, it's like, no, it, it's anybody who has the makeup design, good coaching and good child year, you know, uh, growth and development and meets the right people and is hella lucky that then they can take advantage of this myriad of things that they have, some genetic, some environmental, some coaching, training, and then individual desire that allows that to happen. There are fast people. If you have a school of over a thousand kids, there is a smoking fast person in your building. They may not be doing any sport. You know, my wife, we joke about this all the time. She's probably listening to me right now, but you know, she's got the CC version of the quick twitch fiber gene, which means if she really wanted to, she has one of the key elements to be extraordinarily fast. And she sports wasn't what interested her. She liked puzzles. She liked artwork. And so that's what she did. And she became really great at it. And so as us, as coaches, the misconception is there's only certain people that are fast and only certain communities that are fast. And, and then on top of that, this is what really pisses me off is that only certain people can get faster. You know, it's like, that's well, you know, it's, it's like, no, you can get people way, way faster. Now, are there some people who are predisposed to be better? Yes. But here's the really messed up thing that people don't know. There are a lot of things in us genetically that also are trainable genes. So like your stroke volume of your heart, your lung capacity, your ability to put on muscle mass. Some people's bodies literally don't have the triggers genetically turned on or off to do that. Um, and so some people look really good early. Like I have a naturally low heart rate, which is good because I'm a stressed out individual. So if I had a, not, didn't have that, I'd probably already have croaked. <laughs> But my heart rate isn't very trainable. I don't have the gene that allows that heart rate to drop through training. I am, I've got a great lung capacity that is trainable. So then I have that aspect of aerobic sport that could be great. But then I don't have the trainable lactic tolerance gene. But I have the gene that allows me to recover quickly, which allows me to put on muscle mass, just like my old man. And I have the CT version of the quick twitch fiber gene, which is the quick twitch oxidative version, which meant I was probably predisposed to be really good at the 400, but I didn't like it. Like most kids don't naturally like feeling uncomfortable. You have to create a system that makes them like that. And that was to my detriment because I probably could have been a multi-time all-state kid in 400. And I probably would have not got my hamstrings hurt if I would have chosen to do that because the impact on my tissues would have been different. So, yeah, I, I think the misconception is, is that everybody's just like either fast or they're not, which is bull crap. They're the, the misconception that there's only fast people in certain shades and colors, which is total bull crap. And that that's the frustrating thing. The other thing that frustrates me is that people don't believe that you can make money from track and field. I think that there is a way that in track and field that we can make gambling available to track and field, just like you do with other fantasy sports,
but you have to do it in a way that it doesn't interfere with the outcome of first to 20th place or whatever you do. So it's like, what thrower has the best series of throws? Who has the fastest reaction time out of the blocks? Who reaches, which we just saw in the Olympic trials this week, who hits the highest miles per hour, right? In, in track and field. Like those are all things that don't, don't have outcome dependent stuff. Like who's first, second or third, because that's where then you have people acting like they're pulling hamstrings or, you know, they gear down and let the other person win. We don't want anybody taking a fall in the fourth round, you know, uh, to some mobster payout. (laughs) Right. But there's ways that you can do track and field. That's pretty cool. Like they did where they had the 40 yard dash. Right. And they showed all the females 40 yards and all the guys. And lo and behold, we've got women running the 40 at four, five, four. So when people are like, ah, yeah, these football guys are just as fast as these track athletes, dudes, some of these guys getting NFL contracts are not as fast as the Olympic women. So let's get that out of the conversation too. track and field athletes are just as special within their unique space. So those are some things I think that are major misconceptions. So thanks for the softball. Yeah, that was awesome to hear because like track, like, I would always I encourage all athletes to go out for track and field. I don't care what their other sport is. I just feel like it's got such a wide profile. Like you spoke to earlier, if you can throw, well, there's a lot of different throw events. If you can run, well, there's a lot of different distances there. If you can jump, there's a lot of different things to be had there. It's probably the most diverse profile of any sport because there's so many different events within it. So I'm, I'm kind of glad you said that. And then the other thing as well, uh, especially speed being something genetic. Yes, speed is a highly genetic driven thing, but speed can be developed and watered over time and built and what do you know it's going to be beneficial to any other sport that you're going to play so all the things you said there would push people to get involved in track and field because it's a worthwhile pursuit and it could be something you fall in love with so the next thing that I want to uh, focus on the other softball I want to uh, serve you up where do you feel like track and field has come the furthest in the last couple years or in the modern age where have we advanced in track and field and where have things began to go on the uptick the upswing well I think and not to give too much credit to my book, but I think that the, oh gosh, how can I say this? The mission of the book has been seen in other places, which is reliable resources that are readily available to create a structure and guardrails for coaches to improve their coaching through online education or good resources. Like if you go back all the way back to the nineties, there was a book called the Jack, Dr. Jack Daniels, which I like to drink occasionally. Okay. But uh, Dr. Jack Daniels created a book called the running formula. And it's one of the most sold books in the running space. I think it is the number one most sold book in running space all, all time. And it's like uh, 500,000 copies or something crazy like that at this point. And the reason why it's so good is because this coach really knew what he was able to do. Like you mentioned, knew the constraints to create the adaptations he needed to for competition. Love that. He was able to do that and gave a scaffolding for all coaches to use day to day to day to provide training that will cast a wide net that will help a lot of distance athletes get better. And so sure enough, in American distance running, um, outside of drug abusers and, and not just in, in the United States, but all over around the world, outside of those folks, America has become a dominant power 
in distance running again, because the education is out there for these coaches to start and to get them to a place where every coach, if they just run this program, it's a good place to start. Tony Holler and the Feed the Cat system has recruited lots of young people back to the sport of track and field and his mission of showing the importance of speed to field sports. I'm going to give him kudos here because he is a friend has been really, truly game changing. Cause I would argue that if you go like back, oh gosh, to like 2015 to 2005, there was this big push by field sport coaches. You need to play our sport all year round. Don't do track lift in the off season, get big, do seven on seven. And I know that's still, those are still things play the AU basketball or, or play, um, you know, we got to have you here for every day of spring football, or you don't go do track. It's going to get you too skinny. You're not going to be prepared. Now people realize, no, 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 no. The old school guys had it right, which is let's play multiple sports. There's value in all of them. And then let's support those coaches in their sports season. And I think Tony's done a good job of that. And then I think the improvements and the uptick in other coaches that are at the international level, which is the mission that I'm talking about with the Springs compendium and their willingness to share their knowledge to make everybody better. Like the guys at Altus, you know, that whether or not they have Olympic medalists every four years or not, they're making so many athletes better and coaches better by improving their understanding, creating strategies, creating adaptations, units of training and education to make all, all of us better coaches and hungry, thirsty coaches like me that always want to evolve and improve. If you're looking into those resources, you can't help but get better. You just can't, you just, you're going to get better. And I also think because of podcasts like you're doing here, I think that coaches are more willing to have the long form conversation that helps you get a better understanding of what is this system really like? What are the strengths of what the coach is doing and how do they get it done? And the fact that we're all now communicating with each other, like dude, 10 years ago, you and I would have never met. We've never talked. We would have never had this conversation 10 years ago. And now we're having this conversation and you've got podcasts built out to where you probably don't have to do podcasts again till like 2023. So you've had all these conversations, which naturally allow coaches who are inclined to share more likely to share and their growth mindset people the more of us that model the growth mindset and are willing to share, the more likely a hesitant coach will do the same, which means we're pushing the ones that aren't chatty patties like me (laughs) who don't shut up, but other coaches who might be less likely to share, they're like, I guess I'll come on the podcast and talk. And then they say something that opens up a door for a coach that sends them down an avenue that educates them in a way that they would have never done before. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think those are key points to why we're getting so much better, but we need, we need to highlight how much better we're getting so that the sport that has so many people in it can be profitable too. 
Yeah, that ties really good to this last thing before I give you an opportunity to talk about all your wonderful resources you have out there. And you're absolutely right. My guest I had last week, he said it was his first podcast. I was like, God, I've, I've totally enjoyed listening to all these different things. We're talking about triphasic and a lot of it was built around sprinting. And it was just in a way I'd never heard it before, never been on a podcast before. And it was it was awesome to hear. So you're absolutely right on those different things. And you really spoke to exposure there. Like, you're right. Like, I love Coach Holler stuff he really exposed me and brought me back into track and field. I ran it in high school, kind of got away from it, got into the weight room. So all the things that you said there, like exposure is very important. You have to understand the possibilities are out there. So let's last talking point here. What are some changes you'd like to see within track and field? I heard you talk about the gambling thing there that you feel like would make it more spectator friendly and that would lead to greater exposure, even on, you know, the, the uh, professional stage as well. Yeah, the biggest thing is, is that we need to blend what we have now in terms of special effects and data and make it interesting for the viewers. One of the coolest things they had was showing the differences in speed in each lane of each athlete and showing them their top speed. Now, naturally, that's a great stat, but you also have to have a person who could speak educationally to the audience in a way that doesn't seem too dumb or too smart to explain like, well, this is what's really going on. Cause like one of the things that's really lost in the viewership of track and field is just how crazy fast these people are or how crazy far they're throwing and jumping. And the more that you can show graphics that shows things happening in real time in an accurately the better. One of the cool things that they kind of got away from, they still have it, but the cameras that run all the way around the track and, and shows them running right next to the track. They've had that since like the nineties. And those cameras are awesome because it shows you how fast those people are running. Because when you watch it from a stadium and the stadium cameras are way up and they're panning at a distance, yeah, you know, at the end, when you see the time they ran, you're like, oh my God, that's a really fast time. But truly, it doesn't, a lot of times, it doesn't look that fast, you know? So the more that you can bring the person into the experience of what they're doing, the better. The, you know, and again, that comes with like, you know, the thing that they did with the velocity, that's great with the velocity thing, but also like, hey, this guy just threw 76 feet. Let's show you how far 76 feet is. It's this far into a pool. It's this far. This is how long a tennis court is or a basketball. You know, like this guy's chucking. This is 16 pounds. Here's other things that weigh 16 pounds. Oh, it's like your Pomeranian that he just literally threw 70 feet away from the ring, you know, and and, and using a little bit of performative comedy and, and things like that, that would make the sport really interesting. The other thing I think that they need to be smart about is and I know Nike and some of these shoe companies they want to have these athletes all look the same. That that's not. I think they need to give them different kits. Every athlete needs to have a different kit with different stuff on it because if you see six dudes that you really don't know because you've only seen them at a distance, you're like, who's that guy again? Is that Van Niekirk? Is that you know Benaric? Who who is that? You know, like when you watch a track and field meet and it's an international meet and you've got. 10 Kenyans and 10 Ethiopians racing in a 10 K and they're all wearing the same spike, same color spikes and the same Nike kit. It's hard to differentiate who am I watching here other than these dudes just running. And that's not very entertaining. You know, that those are the types of things that they need to figure out 
you know, to make it better. And again, gambling um, would be huge, you know, in terms of, and there are ways to get it done. And I feel like since I've had the conversation with Stu McMillan and he's buddies with Paul Doyle and some of these guys, some of the things I brought up all of a sudden just showed up and I'm like, Hmm, isn't that interesting? Maybe I should be a consultant, but you know, the reality is, is that they need to start thinking creatively on how to make money on this sport and to make it great. And the other thing is, is like the dopers and, and people like that, naturally we have to have doping control to fix the sport and to keep the sport clean. We also got to figure out a way to really reward those who are clean and who have been successful for a long time. Somebody like Allison Felix, who, you know, has had to have been tested, you know, thousands of times, pretty sure she's clean. She's been a stud since she was, you know, 15 years old and she just made her fifth Olympic team. Like the things that they've done for her recently in the promotions, it's great. You know, we need to do more of that and we need to have our sport more in the common culture because there are millions of kids in America that, that do our stuff like a million. There were 448,000 girls that did track and field in 2019. 448,000 high school girls. That is a lot of people. You got to be able to make money off of that. There has to be something we can do. And we have to be creative through betting, gambling, reality TV, you know, beyond social media posts, you know, using data and graphics to really show how good and amazing these athletes are and what they do. And what the one of the most insulting things I think, Coach Curtis, that Um, really bothers me is when they're like oh like Ronaldo is just as fast as Usain Bolt and it's like no he's not he ran that for five meters Usain Bolt ran that for 200 meters it's a completely different thing it's just like saying oh god I was really close to making the Olympic team and the 100 meter free I was five seconds off the winner five seconds off the winner and a 100 meter free is like galactically different that's like a high school to a pro time you know and people don't conceive that really well and and you've got to educate them in a non-snobby way while the sport is going on to really blow their minds yeah i was i was totally excited to get your perspective on all three of those different things and you brought up the Stu mcmillan podcast and that's kind of where I got this question from. So I was kind of, that was an excellent episode. I'm going to give you an opportunity now. It passes really nicely to all the different resources that you have out there. Uh, You're not watching this on zoom with me. He's got his book in the background. So uh, just shout out uh, your social media accounts, all the different resources you have, and then we'll kind of close out. For sure. I do most of my um, work now on Twitter. That's where I spend most of my time, social media, and that's sprinters come penned. So it's sprinters, C-O-M-P-E-N, and uh, at, and that's where I do a lot of my work. I have a YouTube page called Bantasmo1978, where I post a lot of my videos and workouts and drills and exercises, and even some of my Thursday thoughts originated on there. I have my podcast called The Companions of the Compendium Podcast, and it is on Apple and Spotify and Anchor and most other major podcasts. I have got, uh, you know, 21 original interviews there that are an hour length a piece and then another 20 pieces of content to this point for a total of 40 on there that happens to show up on Thursday. And those are more just kind of like my rants or thoughts about different ideas. And then of course I have my book, the sprinters compendium, 
which you can find on Amazon or my publisher's website, Vervante. And it is a pricey book, but it's 763 pages of an eight point font, no space with over 50 contributing coaches. And so it is by far a big blunt instrument, like a nuclear weapon. It's not necessarily a cruise missile. So when you get it, you're going to be a little overwhelmed um, in a good way. But I would suggest you pick a chapter on a topic that you're not really strong in and you dive in there first and use it like an encyclopedia as opposed to a novel that you would read front to back. Yeah, all good stuff you said there. Like I listen to your podcast every single week. I'm always excited for what guests you're going to have. You've had Dan Paff on, you've had Stu McMillan, you've had a lot of great like jumps coaches and things. So I love like every week I can expect kind of a different perspective from track and field. Is it going to be jumps this week? Is it going to be field based? What, what, what's going to be going on? So I'm always excited uh, for what's going to drop on your podcast. And uh, as well, I've read your book. Uh, I, I go back to it time and time again. So if you've never read the Sprinter's Compendium, it's totally worth the price and it's totally worth checking out because like you said, there's so many different perspectives presented there and you can spend a long time picking through all those different things. It's not something you just read cover to cover right initially, but you can find tons of different things that'll be timely uh, for different situations. So coach, I just want to thank you for taking the time to sit down with me. I feel like we covered a lot of ground, a lot of great topics. I really enjoyed uh, your perspective. What I take away again was the fact that you're stacking things. It's like a Jenga tower. If you stack it incorrectly if you pull the wrong things out at the wrong time the tower will eventually topple so I heard a lot about balance today a thoughtful approach thinking about the different factors in which you need to facilitate over time to build what you referred to as a global athlete on this podcast one of the main reasons I wanted to get started I wanted to look at multiple approaches but I also wanted to look at how to build holistic well-rounded athletes so thank you coach Absolutely. It was my pleasure to come on and I appreciate you letting me kind of go off on a bunch of different directions and show some breadth and depth in our conversation today. And the audience is listening and they want to reach out, please do. Um, this is part of my mission is to try to help people where and when they need it and provide perspective and context if that's needed as well. So thanks again. And I really appreciate the opportunity look forward to maybe turning the page and, and having you come do it on mine. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you've never read The Sprinter's Compendium, make sure to check it out. It really is packed to the brim with useful knowledge on track and field. Also, make sure to check out Coach Banta's podcast, Companions of the Compendium. He has great guests on weekly. Don't forget to subscribe to keep up with the latest content and leave a rating and review if you feel led to do so.